It was approaching midnight on Tuesday when I um, decided I would check my email one last time before retiring. My wife rebukes me for that because sometimes emails can be a little upsetting. Uh, Not so much since I retired. So I checked my email, and much to my surprise, there was an email from the pastors asking if I would preach this morning. And they included an explanation as to why they were making this request. And I I completely understood and I concurred, but preaching was pretty far from my mind. I had not been contemplating preaching to you. Now, I think you probably know I have a fairly sizable file of used sermon notes. And I don't think the elders would have objected if I had gone to that file. But I prefer not to do that. I much prefer to have a fresh word from God that is pertinent for the moment. And so as I endeavored to sleep, I kept waking up and my mind was churning, what should I preach? What should I preach? I also prefer to chew on what I'm going to preach for days, to think about it, ruminate over it. Well, I didn't have very much time. What I'm attempting to bring to you this morning is a fruit of several fractured thoughts that have been on my mind for some time, not for the purpose of preaching, but for the purpose of seeking to understand what is happening in our world. I had three fairly extensive texts in mind that I had hoped that I would be able to preach from that was far too ambitious as it ends up there too. Fairly extensive passages. The best I can do is give something of an overview of these texts and then give you rather specific and pointed applications from these texts. I would much prefer to preach a sweet word of comfort. I really would. But my sermon today has to do with the present situation in which we find ourselves in our culture. What in the world is going on? And I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about everything else. I believe, I believe that we are living in that day that Paul referred to in Ephesians 6 as the evil day. Well, there are two points to my sermon. Point number one a bad response to divine judgment. A bad response to divine judgment. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This text describes... Mankind's repeated wholesale rejection of God's self-revelation given in and through the creation. And it describes a judgment of God that follows this rejection of God's self-revelation. 
Now, as we think about the context and as we think about the content of Romans 1, we ought to remember that while God's revelation never changes, he has been pleased to augment general revelation or natural revelation at times and in places by means of a special revelation, a verbal revelation given by his inspired word. Now, I suppose if we took the whole human race throughout history from creation forward, it would be true that the greater part of the human race has lived with only general revelation. But there have been times, and particularly since the cross, in which God has caused his word to come to people all over the world. And we live at a time in which most of the world, the greater portion of the world, has access to God's special revelation in the scriptures. But Romans 1 is speaking particularly of those who haven't had Bibles, but they have had the knowledge of God communicated through creation. Questions often asked, often in a cheeky way as a rebuttal to the demands of God. What about those who have never heard? What about those who don't have Bibles? Well, Romans 1 answers that. Where the scriptures come, as they have to us, there has often come with the scriptures a mighty work of the Holy Spirit giving new hearts, creating faith and repentance in those hearts. So the responses to God have not always been exactly as described in this text. But wherever there are exceptions, those exceptions exist only because of God's sovereign grace. Every one of us, left to ourselves, would make the same response as the Gentiles of the Old Testament made. We would reject God's glory, we would make idols for our worship, and we would bring God's wrath upon ourselves as is happening right now. Well, let's read beginning in verse 20 of Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, his, God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen, being understood by or through the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Even without Bibles, they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. 
For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. The glorious reality of our God, the fact that he is, the fact that he is a God of power and wisdom, his Godhead, are clearly evident, not obscure, clearly evident in the created universe. And the expectation of God is that humans made in his image will be able to see his glory and bow before him with gratitude and seek after him with all their hearts. Seek a greater understanding of his glory. That's God's expectation, but that's not what has happened. Instead, the human race collectively has rejected the knowledge that God has set before us. We have not bowed before him. We have not cried out that he would give us greater understanding. Instead, we have become idol makers. We made gods for ourselves out of what God himself has made and given us. And in our modern world, we don't worship snakes or dogs. Well, some of us do, but we shouldn't. We don't worship four-footed beasts and creepy things. We worship man. Man has become the modern God. We are gods. And we have the audacity to call the God who is to stand before the bar of our judgment and to answer our questions. And we quibble with him and we argue with him and we find fault with him. We condemn God because God isn't doing what we think God ought to do. We set ourselves up as God's We are, in fact, godless. We live in a godless generation. So, why should it surprise us that God would send judgment? I ask that we read from Genesis 6 simply to be reminded that there comes a time. In which God says, that's enough. That's enough. Your wickedness has become such a stench in my nostrils. I will not tolerate it any longer. Enough. Should we be surprised? That a holy God who created us and has given us every good thing that we have... (laughs) It gives us air to breathe, sunshine, rain, pleasant things to enjoy. Is it surprising that God would say, that's enough? I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And beloved, if the judgment of God, when the judgment of God comes upon our generation, in our time, in our place, it will be more severe than what was experienced in the Old Covenant. We have rejected and distorted both general revelation and special revelation. We've trampled the Word of God under our feet, but even more, we have rejected and crucified the incarnate Word. The word, the eternal Logos. He has come among us. And we've rejected and crucified him. If 
Three times in this text, we're told that God gave people up or God gave people over. God abandoned people. First, he abandoned people to uncleanness. Secondly, he abandoned people to homosexuality. Thirdly, he abandoned people to a defiled mind. The judgment of our present time is not a flood. And it's not fire and brimstone yet. The judgment that we're experiencing is God giving mankind over to the vilest kinds of sin. Now that doesn't mean that God forces people to behave in extraordinarily wicked ways. Not at all. God doesn't tempt people to sin. He doesn't seduce them into perversion. What it means is that God takes away the restraints. He takes away the restraints. He removes the guardrails so that the extreme evil, the extreme depravity that resides in every human heart is allowed to run free. Think of a hundred wild dogs gathered into cages. And for two months, they are beaten every day by humans. And they're given minimal food to eat. And then after two months of little food and daily beatings, the doors are open and the dogs are turned loose. Would you want to be there? Would you want to be there? Beloved God in his mercy by his common grace has put restraints upon the human race. He has used his moral law. He has used the gospel. He has used civil law. He has used the decency of parents training their children He has used certain mores established in society. Certain things you don't do. Certain things you don't say. In a lot of different ways, God has hedged up the human race from doing its worst. But what is happening today is that God is lifting the doors to the cage. And he's turning totally depraved men and women loose in the streets. And all the restraints of common grace and parental instruction and gospel teaching are removed. God's judgment today takes a form of debauchery. And that's what we see in the American society. We see the wanton murder of unborn babies. People brag about killing babies. They're proud of it. And now, in some states, you not only kill babies in the womb, you can kill fully developed babies who were supposed to be killed in the womb, and they survived. And they're outside the womb, fully developed. You can kill them in certain states by just leaving them. Don't feed them. Don't attend to them. Just let them die. Can you imagine that? That's barbaric. That's barbaric. What the Nazis did was barbarism. And what we are doing in the abortion industry is barbarism. That's not all. The legalization 
of homosexual marriage. The legalization of homosexuality, period. The unembarrassed parading in our streets of the LGBTQ behavior and mindset. The anger, the violence, the destruction that's taking place in our cities. And I'm, I'm not just talking now about riots and protests. I'm talking about the murder that happens in inner cities virtually every day. There's no treasuring of life. But all of this, beloved, this unthinkable wickedness that's happening, it's all a display of the judgment of God. And it will result in greater judgment. It will bring fire and brimstone eventually. As we continue on in Romans 1, the text shows that unleashing sexual perversion is not the only form that temporal judgment takes. Look at verse 31 or 28, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, proud, violent, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. And let me say that that phrase, disobedient to parents, I believe is, is simply representative of an all-out all rebellion against established authority. Disobedience to parents, a rejection of the authority of husbands, a rejection of the authority of civil authority and law enforcement, a rejection of the authority of pastors in churches. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. You see, this shows another breakdown of common grace, a removal of restraint. Read through that list more carefully. I think we tend to stop with homosexuality, but there's much more. Read through. Think about the violence that we are seeing on our television. Think about the vitriol that you read on social media. We are living Romans 1. Now, I titled my first point, A Bad Response to Divine Judgment. What do I mean? Well, the text indicates that there are people, even professing Christians, who have embraced at least the underlying mindset and attitude of those who are acting out without restraint. And these people do that. They show, they show their agreement not by behaving as homosexuals or murderers or destroyers of property, but they show their agreement by approving of the evil that is being taught and perpetrated. Look at verse 32. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. 
And the sense of this verse is that those who approve of sin and encourage sin are guilty of greater evil than those who actually commit the deed. Thomas Schreiner, in his excellent commentary on the book of Romans, writes this. Those who encourage others to pursue evil commit a greater evil in that they foment the spread of evil and are complicit in the destruction of others. To my mind, the most troubling verse in Romans 1 may very well be verse 32. But what does it mean to approve of evil doing? What does that word mean? We find a form of the same word in Paul's testimony in Acts 22.20. And I would like for you to turn just a few pages back. Acts 22, 20. This is what Paul says about his own behavior. He says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by, consenting to his death, guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. We're translated consenting, In the New King James, in the ESV, it's translated approving. It's a form of the same Greek word that's used in Romans 1.32, approve. To approve is to consent. Now think about what Paul did at the stoning of Stephen. He did not actually take up stones and throw them down on Stephen. I suspect that as a well-trained lawyer, Saul knew that what was happening wasn't right, wasn't legitimate. And yet, he felt sympathetic with the hysteria that had enveloped that throng of people. And perhaps, perhaps Saul thought like this. Well, if Stephen hadn't been so insolent, who can tolerate this man Stephen accusing the holy men of Israel of murdering the just one? What audacity. And who can help but be enraged at the audacity of this man Stephen to talk about seeing the heavens open? And seeing Jesus, that lowly Nazarene, that street preacher, seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's a proud man. He deserves to die. And so Saul consented to Stephen's execution. But how was his approval expressed? That's really the question for I. It's not what he thought in his inner man. It's how did he express his approval? Well, for one thing, he was there. He didn't have to be there, as far as I know. He was there. He was present. He was watching. He was listening. And he actually took care of the outer garments of those who were throwing the stones, found it hard to get enough umph behind their stone throwing to make much difference. So, hey, Saul, would you take care of my coat? I can't throw a rock with this thing. Sure, I'll take care of it. He gave some kind of aid to the stone throwers. That's a pure conjecture, but... But perhaps he cheered them on, shouted encouragement. Go for it, guys. Don't let up. He's not dead yet. Get him. 
conjecture. But beloved, what I'm about to say is not conjecture. Whatever else Saul did, he gave consent by what he did not do. And what did he not do? He did not object. He did not raise a voice and say, Brethren, this is wrong. What we are doing is wrong. He didn't do that. He didn't express disapproval. He did not rebuke those who were throwing the stones. Whatever else he was, he was silent. And by being silent, he gave his stamp of approval to the murder of Stephen. And the clear implication of verse 32 is that those who encourage evil, those who consent to evil, are guilty of evil in the sight of God. The people in view in Romans 1 know the righteous judgment of God. They are aware that the principle of God's righteousness is that evildoers are worthy of death. Nonetheless, they approve. If they don't participate themselves, they approve. And not just the homosexuality, the covetousness, the maliciousness, the mean-spirited words and behavior, the envy, the murder, the strife, the deceit, the evil-mindedness, the backbiting, the violence, the pride, the boasting. They approve by not objecting. Here's a point, beloved. In a season of divine judgment, when God permits the cesspool of wickedness stored up in human hearts to spill out into the streets and show itself and its stench openly, when that happens, there must be no sitting on the fence. No room for neutrality. No room for passivity. A stand must be taken. It's profoundly disturbing to me to see expressions of wickedness on social media and see Christians siding with the evildoers against other Christians who are trying to rebuke it. It's as if they find the law of God to be too strict. And they don't want to be associated with the narrow-mindedness of the Bible. Let me be very clear. The Bible is narrow-minded when it comes to sin. Very narrow-minded. There's not a lot of wiggle room when the Bible talks about sin. And it is expected that we who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb would take His side and we would stand up for righteousness. And I fear that there are more than a few professing Christians not doing that. Instead, whether they realize it or not, they are giving consent to the wickedness. That's a dangerous thing to do. Well, that's a bad response to divine judgment. Now, secondly, and hopefully more briefly, much more briefly, what does God expect us to do? What does God expect us to do? 
What do you think God expects you to do? When you read on social media that somebody is proud of their son or daughter who's a practicing homosexual, they're proud of them. They want everybody to be proud of them too, but it's obvious their son or daughter is practicing a vile violation of God's law. What do you think God expects you to do? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, please. And I'm glad that the answer to that question's not obscure. Ephesians 5, verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, you know this, no fornicator, unclean person, nor a covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words, for because of these very things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, verse 10. Walk as children of light, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. But whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep. And I believe he's saying that to us. Wake up. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. What does God expect us to do? He expects us to do verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. What does that mean? What does it mean to expose the unfruitful works of darkness? Let me take you to another text which uses the same Greek word in another form. Turn to Luke chapter 3. And I think this makes the matter very clear. What does it mean to expose evil? Luke chapter 3, verse 19. Luke 3, 19. But Herod, the Tetrarch, being rebuked, and that's, that's the same Greek word, different form, being rebuked by John the Baptist concerning Herodias his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. John the Baptist exposed the unfruitful works of darkness in this man named Herod. Now Herod was a ruler, he was civil authority, and he was a bad man. Everybody knew that taking up with Philip's wife was wrong. Herod knew it was wrong. Everybody knew it was wrong. But nobody had the courage to say it's wrong. John the Baptist did. And I don't believe that John the Baptist stood outside in the streets and preached a sermon to other people about Herod. Shouldn't do that. If you got something to say to somebody, say it to them. 
I think John went into Herod and said, Dear sir, you're committing adultery. You're violating the law of God. And in the name of Jehovah, I command you to stop. Repent. Well, that made John the most popular man in Israel. No. He was thrown into prison. Eventually his head was cut off. But we sang earlier about a glorious day. And when that glorious day comes, do you think John the Baptist is going to be sorry that he took a stand for righteousness? What does Christ expect his people to do in the evil day when God is judging the world by removing the restraints and permitting evil to run wild? What does Christ expect us to do? That's pretty obvious, isn't it? He expects us to take his side against the evil. He calls us to warn the evildoers of the eternal consequences of continuing in rebellion against God. The objective is not to embarrass them. The objective is to turn them. Even though it's a day of judgment and not many people are saved in a day of judgment. They may be the exceptions. Surely if they would turn and repent, God would receive them. Christ would forgive them. And that's our ultimate objective. It's not to make them feel bad. It's not to embarrass them. It is to turn them to Jesus, away from destruction, to the forgiveness of their sins and life eternal. Expose Rebuke the unfruitful works of darkness. That doesn't mean you have to be hateful, though you will be accused of being hateful. We live in a day in which you cannot say to anybody, you're wrong without being accused of hate. So you just have to buckle in. (laughs) They're going to say, you're a hater. You're a homophobe. You're a bad person. Make sure you're not a bad person and make sure you don't speak hatefully. But make sure you speak clearly and you speak directly about sin. Name sin. Quote text of scripture. That's the best thing you can do. Bring the word of God to bear on the behavior that is sinful. We must warn people of the wrath that's coming. We must tell them that their sinning is a grave offense to the living God. You say, well, they won't like me anymore. Well, you have to leave that with God, don't you? Yeah, you'll probably lose some friendships. And there may be members of your own family that will break fellowship with you. And there will be people who think you're unloving and judgmental and mean-spirited. But Jesus won't. That's not what he will think. He will think there's one of my children who loves me. There's one of my blood-bought lambs that loves me more than they love being loved. And you see, that's our problem. We love being loved. We're not willing to risk being loved in order to love Jesus or the souls that are perishing. Beloved, we're no better than anyone out there in the streets. We're the same by nature. But God has saved us from destroying our lives with wickedness the way other people are doing. And now God calls us 
to rescue those who are destroying themselves. They don't understand what's happening. Just like Noah's neighbors, they didn't understand. What's that fool doing? He's building a what? A what? Never heard of a ship. What's he doing? They didn't understand. Noah understood the issues. He stood in the light. And we stand in the light. And there's darkness all around. And it's our privilege. It's our calling. It's our duty to shine light into the darkness. But if you're going to do that, you're going to have to reject the devil's intimation that to do that is to hate people. And the devil has succeeded with many, many Christians by whispering, if you want to win them, don't offend them. Don't offend them. Just leave them be and love them. Just leave them alone and love them. And if you just love them, you'll win them. No. No, you won't. What you'll do is stand by, smiling sweetly, while they destroy their souls and pass into hell. That's what you'll do. If we're going to save people, we're going to have to take risk. We're going to have to pray over them, pray over our words, get close to them, and get them along, put our arms around them and say, I love you enough. If it would do any good, I would die in your place. But I've got to tell you, the way you're living, the things you are doing are evil and obnoxious before God. I beg you, repent. And there is one who is willing to forgive you, and he has the authority to forgive you. And I plead you, come to Jesus. That's what we got to do. That's what we got to do. Well, I close with this application. Providence has given us a means for reaching more people than the generations before us. It's called social media. It's called Facebook. It's called Instagram. It's called Twitter. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of evil that goes on in Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. There's a lot of tempting. There's a lot of soliciting to evil. But beloved, it provides a means for us to shine light into darkness. And we're going to have to forget about how many followers we have how many friends we have. And we need to forget about convincing everybody how pretty we are or how clever we are. We need to love Jesus, love truth, and love the souls of men enough to speak candidly. Now maybe you need to do that by a direct message. But when there's a discussion about homosexuality or the authority of husbands to rule their families, don't run and hide. Bring the word of God to bear. It's time for truth speaking with love, kindness, tenderness, of course, but without compromise, without a hint of consent or approving of evil, without any ambiguity, we must speak God's truth in the evil day and plead with the perishing to flee the wrath that is coming. My purpose in preaching this It's not to afflict your conscience. 
My purpose in preaching this is to stir you to do something. We have gotten in this shape because Christians have been silent. People who know the word of God have been afraid to speak. And I'm pleading with you. Don't don't be hateful. Okay? Don't be mean-spirited. But speak. Speak. You never know who's listening. Let's pray. Father, we would have we would have preferred to live in a different time, perhaps. We think about those days of revival when houses of ill repute and bars were closed because nobody wanted to go there. And churches were filled and streets were filled with hymns and Oh, it was so wonderful. Can't really imagine. We wish we were living in a day like that, but we're not. And we ask you humbly, sincerely, to help us be faithful. Not simply to keep ourselves from the wickedness, but to expose the wickedness. And to call perishing souls away from their wickedness to Jesus. Give us fresh energy. Give us zeal. May we do more good in the days ahead than we have done in the days behind. We pray in Christ's name, his worthy name. Amen.